After a lifetime of interviewing people, I will occasionally get asked, who was the most interesting? It's an impossible question to answer. But suffice it to say that if I had to answer, Gabrielle Hamilton is in that conversation. Welcome to Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Mishkin. It's a podcast all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment. The first jobs, obstacles overcome, the doubt, plan Bs, and the passion to push forward. It's not unusual to wear a lot of hats professionally, but to excel at more than one thing, that's not so easily done. Gabrielle Hamilton is a chef. She's the chef and owner of a beloved restaurant in New York's East Village called Prune and she published a prune cookbook in 2014. She always wanted to be a writer. She got a master's in fine arts degree in fiction writing at the University of Michigan. She opened Prune in 1999 and quickly established herself in the food world. And then she published her memoir, Blood, Bones, and Butter, The Inadvertent Education of a Reluctant Chef in 2011. It's a thoughtful, unvarnished look at a compelling journey From a tumultuous youth in Pennsylvania, to rocky years as a young adult in New York, and finally the path to becoming a chef and restaurateur. It was her first book, and she knocked it out of the park. Blood, Bones, and Butter was a New York Times bestseller, and was on numerous lists of best books of the year in 2011. In 2020, Prune closed because of the pandemic, and Gabrielle Hamilton's piece about it in the New York Times eloquently captured the despair of the moment. At the end of our interview in 2014, we talked about doing this again in 10 years to see where we are. And that's where we started our conversation. This may sound strange. I'm not sure I've ever said this to an interviewee, but uh, when I don't get a lot of sleep, I often think of you. Because you would talk about, like, between raising kids and restaurant hours, like, you didn't look at it as getting a full night's sleep anymore. You looked at it as, wow, I had a great three-hour nap. It's incredible what you mind game you can play with yourself and how it really works out. And I've actually used that. I'm not sure it's made me any less tired, but uh, I've actually used that from time to time. Oh, I'm so glad it's been helpful. It's true, like a long, luxurious three-hour nap. When is the last time you had one of those? (laughs) As long as you weren't expecting an eight-hour night's worth. <laughs> yeah, that's how it could go. And you added to that, you said, so when I asked you about, like, you know, whatever life balance means, you said the handle that I have is not on balance, but on comfort with a lack of balance. It's important to give up that struggle. And you said that in 2014, who who could have known what, what lay ahead as far as uh, the pandemic and the restaurant world? So just as a starting off point, I'm curious, did that notion of, well, do you know, I can't control that. Did that at all help you once 2020 came around? Entirely. It's so interesting to hear you say back to me things that I've said to you. And as I was listening, I thought, wow, she's really consistent. Her her key is resignation. <laughs> like, <laughs> it seems to be my strategy for sailing through the things is to rather than resist is to resign and i guess that's true like if you're not going to get a good night's sleep enjoy a nap and if you're not going to have balance then 
submit to the chaos a little bit or the lack of balance. So I guess the same thing when I saw the tidal wave, the 300 foot wave of COVID coming, I think my first and enduring response was to go slack in the neck and and go with the wave and not fight and swim so hard against it. I had a very serious car accident when I was younger. And I recall also as the car started to spin out on this black ice and I remember um, going slack in the car and just saying, goodbye everybody, I hope you hear me. And obviously I survived the car accident. Yeah, it's three years now, almost. Yeah. Um, and so I'm curious how you're thinking about it now, as opposed to during those first few months when you had to close the restaurant, and also you wrote that beautiful piece in the New York Times about it. Uh, yeah. What's the thought thought process now? I guess I'm. I it's something that's consistent, or that I've really observed that I I think I didn't realize as acutely uh, before is that uh, we really are not. Um, a unified monolith, this thing called the restaurant industry. And we are so disparate. And I heard someone describe it as a, you know, a thousand million armies of one. And it's true. We're all just on our own trying to figure it out. And there's no sort of, you know, big papi chulo in the sky (laughs) or sort of big organized, um, consistent, what's the word I'm looking for? Like an organizing Mm -hmm. regulatory sort of feeling of like, well, this is what we're going to do as a group folks. And um, so it's, it's, I guess the old phrase is it's every man for himself. You're all free agents. So we're all free agents and or not so free agents maybe. Yeah. And everyone's trying to solve the problems on their own and are, you can see people being quite inventive that, we're only going to be open three days a week or we're going to have uh, only pop-ups or, you know, people are just swinging in the freaking breeze trying to figure <laughs> out how to charge enough money, how to get paid, how to pay your staff, how to deal with, um, you know, people who can't show up because they're sick and there's no way you're going to operate with anyone that has COVID or it's a whole frontier that you face on your own and you sort of look out and see, well, what is my colleague over here doing? And what is that colleague over there doing? And um, it's, you pick and choose from this sort of a la carte menu and see what works for you and what doesn't. Swinging in the freaking breeze. That's an old food term, right? That's an old restaurant. I believe that's French, right? (laughs) That's from the great French chef. Um, This night we will wing it. (laughs) That's right. Um, you told me once, like just the idea, the sensation of having your hands in the flower bin in that kind of soft, silky, soft feeling to it was that's a great way to spend the afternoon. After all that you've been through with the closing of the restaurant, does it still give you joy? Does the making of the creation of food still give you joy? Oh, more than more than ever. It's it's a real quandary or thing that I'm trying to figure out is you know, I love to cook and I love to clean and I love the sensorial part, the sense, the sensations of it. I love the physicality of it. So I still have a restaurant and the things that I don't really want to do in the restaurant, all the vagaries of 
the finances and the plumbing and well, actually sometimes I like the plumbing too, but what does a what does an old chef do who just wants to cook and clean? That's it. I mean, that's that's how I'm gonna go at it. <laughs> sort of not that you asked, but I am sort of thinking like I have prune, you know, I still have the restaurant. And I will have it for, I think I have another seven years on the lease. And uh, and I keep, the metaphor I keep working with is, you know, people who open restaurants in what had been barns or uh, like a garage or something. And I'm like, oh, what would happen if I open a little place that used to be a restaurant <laughs> where there's still vestiges of restaurant in the building. You can still see that this is the barn where the cows ate, or you can still see this is the where the mechanics fixed the cars to drag the metaphor out. Um, but I'll just cook and clean and it won't be like an actual restaurant. It'll just be a nice place to come and eat and drink <laughs> as created by a person who used to be a chef. <laughs> So, but the restaurant's not open right now, no? No, it's closed. We're doing some renovation. Okay. You are a chef and also you're a great writer. And your memoir, Owns Blood and Butter, uh, came out and you would always want to be a writer. And then all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but you wrote it and it came out to great acclaim. You talk about getting that big wave coming at you in a negative way, obviously when COVID happened. As a writer and someone who wanted to be a writer for so long, when the book came out and that acclaim started to come in, what's that like to to deal with? Oh, it's so thrilling and validating. And um, for me, it was just the greatest, the greatest thing on earth. Because, you know, I thought I'd said goodbye to the possibility of writing because I had so engaged in restaurant work. And when I opened Prune, I thought, well, say goodbye, man. You're not a writer. Face the music. You're a, you're a cook. You're just a cook and just get with it and stop, you know, looking over your shoulder at this other greener pasture of being a writer. And, you know, and that was a heavy hearted and sad goodbye to a long held passion and dream. So when the, writing career started to happen <laughs> and people responded to the book and I got, you know, an excerpt in the New Yorker, which as you know, for every writer on earth, it's like, you got to get in the New Yorker. That's your bona fides. That's your, I'm in, I'm in the literature camp. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> they let me in. <laughs> so, um, it, I mean, what's to say? It's like the greatest, the greatest goddamn thing. But then maybe a little later you're like, okay, you can't just do a one-off. Are you actually a writer? You got to see if you can do this again and can you improve and do better the next time? And so you got to keep going or I do. Yeah. And how is that keep going process? How is that working for you? Do you, do you sit down when you sit down to write now? Do you think about, Oh, I, I have to do something completely different than the memoir or does doing the memoir have any effect on your writing career now because you've done it once? I think I'm sort of prone to memoir. Like that might be my um, form. Uh, that might be my form. I have to see if I could push it further and do do fiction. But um, so I don't think I have to do anything different. I just 
you can't tell the same story over and over again and sing the same old song. It, you don't want to be, you know, playing Freebird at every concert. <laughs> <laughs> you want to write some new material and you also want people to let you. So I think that's the hardest part when you start writing again is to be willing to break up with some of your former fans in a way, because you might write something new or in a new voice or try new, try new material and not have people sort of went, wah, I liked it better when you were blood bones and butter, or I liked the old prune, <laughs> you know, you have to just sort of mutually agree and say, me too. Prune was great. Or blood bones and butter was a real good first try. And, um, you know, peace out to you. I'm trying something new and I hope you'll come with me. And if you don't, no, no problem. We'll, we'll seek new, new friends. It was better than a first try. I mean, Anthony Bourdain called it the best memoir by a chef ever. That's, that's pretty heady stuff. That's pretty good. Um, the love of writing, where does that come from at home growing up? Is that from someone specific or something specific or just kind of mysterious from out of the blue, you love reading and you love writing. I definitely love reading and writing and have from, it's one of those, you know, I didn't pick it. It picked me kind of thing. I established an early aptitude for it that was noticed in, you know, elementary school and that kind of those little early encouragements that one gets at the earliest stages of life. I certainly had that. And sixth grade literary magazine, possibly totally that even, you know, second grade poem in the national, like under third grade publication <laughs> like that. Yeah. Had a lot of that little early encouragement for sure. <laughs> I had a little, I guess they call it a gift or a knack. So I had a thing for words for sure, but I often joke that the reason I persisted because it's not about, you know, it's really when people say, oh, you have such a way with words. I'm often now as a established or professional writer, almost offended by that because it makes it seem like if you think writing is like putting page, <laughs> putting words on the page in a sort of attractive, nice way, kind of like an interior designer moving the furniture around and putting nice lighting in, I'm like, you're fucking crazy because <laughs> it's so much... <laughs> It's so much more involved and difficult than that, obviously. So I think Tanahasi said, yeah, Tanahasi Code said, writing is thinking. And I couldn't agree more. It's like you have to do some very, very clear, focused thinking. So for you writing the memoir, you're thinking about, and the, one of the beauties of the memoir is how you so beautifully write. I mean, you've got a lot, a lot of stuff to write about. Uh, from your childhood and from your early adulthood and your folks' divorce and coming to New York City as a like a 16-year-old. It's all there on the page. Is that an easy choice for you to make when you're writing this book? Look, uh, this, these are all the chapters of my life. I'm going to write about them, warts and all. Or is that a struggle internally? Am I going to do this or not? You know, memoir is such a, such a tricky category to work in and I fear it and have a healthy respect for it. Um, and it's, you want to, I, I, I tell the stories that I know. So I, I use the material that I have. I write what I know about and the thinking of writing, of course, is to not be, 
um, masturbatory on the page or to be like uh, raconteur, like somebody at the bar who's like, oh, have I got a story to tell you? It's like, you know what? Everybody's got a story and I don't really give a shit about my stories. What I'm most actively thinking about and working on when I write in the first person, as I do, first person narrative, is are you, bud, going to find yourself on this page? And are you, Sally, in Connecticut, going to find yourself on this page? And are you, you know what I'm saying? So will the I, when the person who's reading a sentence that starts with I, let's say it does, will I recede, I, Gabrielle Hamilton, the author, recede, and will the reader find themselves behind that eye. Does that make sense? It does. So that's the work. And that's, <laughs> I think also you get the question frequently, or I do get the question frequently, like that must've felt good for you, right? Really cathartic to get that story out. And I howl with laughter at what the perception of writing about one's own life as cathartic. If I think about cathartic events, I think like, Oh, a good drinking binge <laughs> or laughing your head off with a bunch of friends or, you know, something in the sack or something like that. But sitting or a down, great scone, <laughs> a great scone, you know, a great yes. scone. Yeah. Would, right. Cathartic. Yeah. Well, these things are going for a huge run or something like that. But sitting down and writing a memoir is like having a UTI. <laughs> I think it was Hemingway that said that, actually, right? <laughs> well, you know, he's a man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey. They don't have the courage to say what really needs to be said, men. We know this. <laughs> writing, as you, which lead, you told me that writing a memoir, oh, I'm not going to do that. You described it as that was too girly that you wanted to write muscular sentences, and Hemingway was the guy. But um, you see how far I've come? Hmm where I've now gotten out from under the yoke of wanting to be Hemingway without having forgotten the immense and perfect, perfect, perfect lessons of Hemingway about what's good writing. And so you keep all that in your body, but at the same time, you're like, I'm not Hemingway. I'm me. And I have some merits of my own and, and, and I'll bring them to the page. So it's it's been fun as an adult writer to to sort of is the word a shoe to disregard or to, mm -hmm. to let go of some of those for example kill your darlings when i hear that sentence now which is such a common um intelligence for good writing kill your darlings i think you know a lady didn't say that that's a man who said kill your darlings i would never kill my darling i would go and rescue my darling and take it out of the place where it's not thriving and put it in a different story or in a future essay. But this idea of kill your darlings and that it's such a, or, or, or even the terse muscular sentences of Hemingway, all these things that you're taught in writing school and that I really believe in and you must adhere to them. But once you have it in your body and you start to ask yourself, well, I'm not, <laughs> I'm my own writer. So what am I going to do? I'm like, Oh, well, I'm going to rescue some of my darlings or I'm going to use a few too many words in this sentence, <laughs> but you'll follow me. <laughs> well, for what it's worth, uh, and I'm not proud to admit this. I got to page 100 of for whom the bell tolls. I was done. I got to page 100 of the sun also rises. I was done. I know that makes me a terrible human being, but 
<laughs> you know, there's other types of writing. Let's put it that way. Uh, cathartic, I would think it was, would be the exact opposite to, to think about and to write about, for example, you know, a, a chapter or a scene where your folks have gotten divorced and it's you and a, a sibling and basically left alone to write about that, I would think is the exact opposite of cathartic. I'm so glad to hear you say that because of course it is the opposite. I mean, there is a truth that once you have organized the events of your life into a coherent narrative that works for your own brain, it does sort of soothe one and relax one. I think it's kind of psychologically what we all do with all of our, um, you know, the sort of things that happen in life that kind of assault you, <laughs> that you are the vagaries of living, as I say. <laughs> but so once you can organize some of those events into a narrative line that satisfies you and works out for the reader also that's a that's pretty a win-win i wouldn't call it cathartic but it's very satisfying it's very mm -hmm. closing and quiets quiets one's mind quiets my mind you told me that uh after you wrote the book you were looking for your parents to say ask the question where was i namely themselves where were they and you didn't get it did you expect it? And subsequently, you know, all these years later, is there any follow-up to that? I was not seeking their curiosity, but for me, it, yeah, sorry. Can I just back up and say this? Just, we're having a conversation. That's okay. Yeah, that's you don't sorry. have to back up or anything. Humbling. It's, um, it's, I recognize it's not an easy topic to discuss also. Right. Probably. I mean, I think it's, this is the other thing you know, the thing about memoir, and it's one thing to write about your own life, but obviously your own life is in conjunction to all these other people's lives. And then you start dragging other people into your story. And this is an enormous responsibility. And so to your question, after I finished Blood, Bones and Butter, and I saw what it was, and I was contemplating the responses of my parents or my family members, I recognized for myself that the only valid or legitimate response to the material in the book would have been or should have been, holy shit, where was I as the parent? Where was I when all that was happening? You're, you know, 13 in a tube top, smoking cigarettes downtown, like looking for townies to hang out with, which is just so fucked up. Or um, anyway, you know, all the things that happened in our generation, it was just a sort of parenting style of you're on your own kid, but it was a on steroids are on your own kid. So to be 16 and blowing Coke and getting in trouble in New York with no one watching or wondering or calling. So for me, the only question was where the hell was I? And I'm so sorry I wasn't there. And when that wasn't forthcoming, it was actually very permissive. It's like, oh God, I get to write whatever I want. There's no, um, there's no, we're not beholden to each other. Everybody in New York, even people who are born and bred in New York, have a coming to New York story. It's it's part of the New York story, and uh, usually people of a certain age will wax nostalgic about it. You've written about it. 
and you were here at a young age. You think about those years now and have your thoughts about those years and what they were like for you as a, as a young woman, have they changed at all through the years? That's so fun to think about. I love what you're asking because I think I have a, the capacity to uh, wax so nostalgic about my arrival in New York. And at the same time, lately, I can also look back at it and be like, "Woo, that was so wrongo. <laughs> <laughs> and what I don't um, wish to remain in one camp or the other, like, oh, back in the day when yeah. um, it was so gritty and New York was so rough. And um, it's, it's a, uh, I like having both ways of looking back at it and being having both on call. So I can recall the arrival in New York story um, with, it was so awesome <laughs> in your, you know, one bedroom tenement apartment and um, on your own and starving and eating out of, you know, using coins out of the jar to buy cans of sardines to survive, all that stuff. It was so, it makes you who you are. It's very gritty and it tells a good story. And I can also look back and be like, why do you glorify that, Gabrielle? Like what makes you find that so awesome that you are constantly setting yourself in positions of danger or harm? And maybe you could mellow that out in your older <laughs> life so that you don't always have the most fascinating story <laughs> or most harrowing story to tell. Like, And then I must say, if we're gonna talk about writing, that becomes a job in itself. How do you have, if you're a person who thinks the only stories worth telling are the ones that are harrowing and that um, set you up in danger all the time and how you survived and got out of it or your cunning and your wiliness, et cetera. It's like, how can you write lively, interesting stories in which <laughs> basically you're not trying to stay out of jail or um, you know, narrowly escape frankly, jail or death. <laughs> Every person I've talked to who, when they were younger, again, long before the, lev the notion of professional fulfillment, when it was still, you know, is this going to happen or not? Every person I've talked to who went on a trip somewhere when they were young, be it across this country or in Europe or in Asia, I've not yet met the person who looks back on it and says, Oh, that was two years wasted out of my life. Uh, right. Everybody has this notion of, wow, um, um, that that period meant a lot to me, and I learned a lot. Tell me about your trip, how you came to it, and uh, I know these are big questions, but um, uh, what did you get from your trip as a young person after you'd already been in New York City, right? Yeah, those journeys are changing, right? They 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 alter your life forever going forward. That was a um, two-year, almost two-year trip, almost around the world. Not exactly made it as far as, you know, Southeast Asia and came back, but um, with your backpack and a, a People Express airplane ticket for $99 to Belgium. Um, yeah, it blows your mind open in a way that can never close again after you've seen you're walking through a city in a very far away country. You're a young person and you see in the window of the bookstore that they have best-selling authors. <laughs> and meanwhile, heretofore, you're thinking, 
wait, they have best-selling authors in their own language? Or, <laughs> or you walk past the movie marquee and you see that there are blockbuster movies that aren't the ones that you knew from the United States. Does that make sense? Like mm-hmm. you're always thinking like, well, no, Stephen King is the best-selling author in the world. It's like, no, there are people in Calcutta have never heard of stuff, you know, that kind of, well, maybe not now, but so those kinds of perspective that travel gives you, you know, will never leave you. You will always sense yourself in a larger world. And then also just frankly, the pragmatic crap that you have to figure out on your own on those journeys, how to make sure you don't, you know, miss the train or how to get fed in a place where you don't speak the language and you don't know what the hours of the, or if there's going to be a strike suddenly and now everything's closed and you can't get to the American Express office to cash in your traveler's check. And what are you going to do? You have, you know, 30 drachmas in your pocket. (laughs) So I don't think you'll ever uh, forget those experiences either and how they form you in your, in your, your actual chromosomal makeup. How about when it comes to food and the notion of feeding people, which you would eventually do for years and years and years? But, you know, I've been chasing that experience um, ever since. And what I mean to say is how to offer to someone else the experiences that I had while traveling, because they involved always profound hunger, um, amazing generosity and hospitality, and also just this perfect union of you being um, inept sort of, you know, you're, you're lost or you're hungry or you don't speak the language or you don't have enough money or you don't really know what's going on. You don't know how to navigate the menu or the, even just the streets in front of you, like what's going on here and to have somebody help you offer you, uh, make it go for you, bring you a sandwich, just, throw an apple in a blender with yogurt and honey and say, drink this. Um, I, I've wished I could offer that back in New York at prune, or that was sort of the intent of what I wanted to do is why don't you arrive here, poor, hungry, lonesome traveler, and let me take care of it. It would be my ultimate pleasure to feed you, embrace you, have you sit down and make you feel relaxed and calm. This has turned out in a professional setting to be pretty difficult because it requires that the person arriving feels already grateful and bedraggled, (laughs) (laughs) which is, you know, most New Yorkers don't walk into a restaurant with that feeling. They're like, what's going on here? (laughs) Well, it'd be a little tough to um, maybe put up a sign in front of the restaurant saying like only bedraggled customers welcome here. And you don't usually see that sign in front of most restaurants. Oh my God. I think that's what I should do. That'll be my new... (laughs) No entry unless you are <laughs> bedraggled and frazzled. <laughs> Did the trip come to an end because uh, you either ran out of money or it's time to go home or, okay, I've done this. It's time to start my new chapter. Uh, it was kind of a mix of things. I After about two years, I was running out of money. I'd had a uh, one a camera stolen out of the bottom of my sleeping bag. And it was sort of the the last straw. I was already, I was getting tired. I think it was, I was tired of being on the go and having to learn a new 
system at every new country, every new youth hostel. Even though I had settled in in a few places, like in Turkey, I lived for a few months and worked in a restaurant there. But it just started to, um, that sort of itinerant and the hustle and the constant fear of like, well, where am I going to go next to make sure I have enough money to live following the seasons? Like if I'm going to go to Crete to pick oranges or I'm, you know, then I'm going to go, where do I go next to work a season as one of those sort of bohemian backpackers do? Hmm. And I got fatigued and I got ripped off. And then I was like, I'm going home. And I ended up going to school, which I think was a really doable thing. Having dropped out a few times of college, having made several efforts at it. By the time I got back from that two-year trip around the world with everything that I'd had to accomplish and navigate, getting a BA was... Um, to go back to where we started a piece of cake. <laughs> <laughs> also, you knew where your next meal was at college. I mean, yeah, you know, you go to dining commons and, and there it is. Where was that? <laughs> uh, when I got back, I went to Hampshire for the second time. So I'd started. Right, at, yeah. Cause you had been there before, right? Yeah. I would started at NYU as a 16 year old and uh, dropped out after a year because I was involved in a lot of crap in New York, you know, stealing and drinking and drugging. And then um, and then I went to Hampshire and quickly, uh, it, just a couple of semesters in there also burnt out. Maybe I did a year and a semester and um, I was too young and I wasn't ready. And Hampshire College is a, to me, it, it was like grad school at an undergraduate level. It required such self-initiative and self-motivation which I was not self-possessed enough to have at the time. I really needed um, authority figures or somebody to check and make sure I was going to class. And that's why I'm saying by the time I got back from that two-year hiatus, traveling around the world, getting myself to class in the morning was not a problem. Or <laughs> <laughs> somebody asking that I needed a you know eight-page paper by the end of the week. I was like, great, got it, no problem. Everything in its time. Yeah. 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 Um, like, like the sun also rises. You might read that now and it might be that your favorite book. Do I have to? <laughs> just All to right. Out, just to find out. No. Someone says, Hey, why are you reading that? Gabrielle told me I had to. <laughs> I just want to know. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'll read. I'll, I'll make a deal. I'll make, I'll read the second hundred pages. Because okay. then, because then you can confidently say about yourself, Instead of, do I need to feel bad about myself? I never really got past page. <laughs> you could say, I don't feel bad about myself. Not for nothing, but on the list of things that I feel bad about myself, about <laughs> the fact that I haven't finished two American classics, that's like about well, number 48, right? Okay. <laughs> it's like me and being the fifth Beatle. I don't want to be the fifth Beatle. I want to be like the 47th Beatle. That oh, would be nice. good. Yeah. You know, I don't need Brian Epstein. He's got the fifth Beatle. Before you go back on the, before you go on the trip, as you mentioned, those early New York years, uh, they were not for the faint of heart, uh, with stuff you were involved in. Did you ever have a feeling of like, am I going to be able to get out of this or is this going to end badly? Or while you're in it, are you not even concerned with that? Yeah, I think I had a real street urchin, daredevil sort of streak. And I think I would make decisions so cavalierly that they weren't even decisions. And right. so I had an, a blithe, oblivious sense to the consequences or, um, except at the same time, I think I was cultivating and accumulating 
kind of adrenal experiences that I would have near misses, uh, you know, just escaping certain dangers. Right. And that can be addictive in a way. So I was not, was not taking care. I was not, I was sort of going for it almost, you know, gunning the, the gas pedal toward more and more higher, higher dramatic events. And it wasn't until I got that, I got busted for grand larceny and possession of stolen property at the Lone Star Cafe, having been part of this pretty incredible stealing scheme that everyone was involved in that when they were wanting to prosecute because they had had all the servers there bonded. So the insurance company wanted to prosecute. That was the most sobering. It was a moment where I saw that I wouldn't be able to play around and get out of it anymore. That one, one, one more step in that direction. And Gabrielle, that's where you're headed. You're no longer going to be sort of the understudy to a hoodlum, you're going to actually be a freaking hoodlum and that's your life. And so there was something very sobering about that near miss. And the only reason I near missed was because I was underage and they should not have hired me in the first place. So we had this sort of counter ballast, if it, if that's the right, we had mm -hmm. a negotiating chip, which is, well, you should never have hired a 16 year old to be serving alcohol in your restaurant. And that's how I got out of it. But had it not been that, it was like, and I was 17, about to turn 18 at that time. And I was like, okay, I'm going to get out of this. And going forward, let's clean this shit up. Years later, you're back in New York after your two-year trip, and you're working in the food world in New York in your 20s, right? And is the feeling of, hey, this is, you know, I've had a love of food for a long time. This is great. I'm in New York. I'm working. This is happening. Or is there still a feeling of there's probably something else out there? Yeah, I graduated with a, uh, I wanted to write and direct for theater and got to New York and directed a show at, um, at Wow, Women's One World Cafe, which is on First Street. It was my first exciting New York job in like a little black box with clip on lamps on a four floor walk up in the East village, but it still felt exciting. And like, I was here I am, I'm doing what I wanted to do. And, but still you have to pay the rent. So I was catering and, um, you know, I'd been working in kitchens my whole life. So it's competent and could get paid to do it. But I always wanted to just write or, write a novel or write. And what would happen is that the day, the end, the day would end after 12 hours or even 14 hours or 10 hours. And I would not want to sit down at the notebook. I would want to go out for a drink and have a smoke or have somebody else cook. And so it just sort of went on and on for years like that. It was like, I think I'm going to be a writer, but I guess I just really have to go to work because how else am I going to pay my rent? I'm, I'm too tired to write, but it nagged at me forever. And that's why when I decided to open the restaurant that was when I realized I had to put the idea to bed of being a writer. But you, in amidst that, you went off to graduate school for writing. And yeah. I mean, I, but from I what you've told me, you loved it. <laughs> I put a deep, deep uh, bench of experience into the catering world for a long time. So when I was about to turn, I guess maybe I was turning 30, I went to grad school. 
and that was the that was the final. That's right. I went to grad school like I'm going to make one hail mary pass at this writing career. Enough with this catering crap. And I loved grad school. <laughs> it was it was like a two year uh, sabbatical where you could read and write and use your brain in ways that you know in a kitchen don't often get used. <laughs> it was not so much of gee, I hope we have enough fish for tomorrow's service or, you know, have I properly stored my parsley today? It's like, you got to really have your mind blown. I thought grad school was great. And also a little hard, you know, I don't know if any, maybe it's just me. Am I a ne'er-do-well or a, uh, what's the word where you're ne'er, malcontent? You can Um, never quite feel good wherever you are, no matter what. So you get to the greener pasture of grad school. And I was also sort of in love with the academic experience, but itching at the also white or ivory towerness of it. And the, I was like, where's real life, man? This is not real life. This is like in your head, you people, this is up in your head. <laughs> so maybe I'm and just- they, And they took that the wrong way. That is shocking. I never said anything out loud. <laughs> oh, good, good. I just went and found what I needed on the on the side, you know, I was, I went to, I was a, I was a solid citizen of both town and gown. So I worked in a catering company while I went to grad school. I definitely played pool in the local, you know, bar while I went to grad school. So on one side of your brain, you're, you know, reading Hegel (laughs) and Heidegger and all of that stuff that I'm like, well, this makes my brain hurt, but it's good. And then Oh, thank God for a game of pool at the bar later. So maybe I just need both things at once. Is there a point, understanding that when you have a restaurant, in terms of no time to think, no harder business, but is there a point, the the memoir is out, Prune is open, where were you able at all to step back for a little bit and think, I had these two passions, I had these two loves, and I've made them happen, both of them. I have to say that maybe it's my nature, but I can, the answer is yes. And for me, those, they are momentary. I am like a kind of dromedary of moments. So I can live deeply slaked or satisfied, you know, like my thirst is quenched on little five minute moments um, and they can carry me across a long desert for, you know, 30 days, or I don't know how I'm going to just butcher this metaphor for as long as <laughs> but there are these moments that I can still feel or live and recall. And they are like, Holy hell. I hear the voices of my staff arriving and they're convening around the, coffee area and putting down their bags and you know one shift is leaving and the new shift is coming in for dinner and they're so excited to see each other and you know I could be in the back prep kitchen hearing that sort of tingle of camaraderie and excitement and feel like wow I have really created an awesome space here and people feel well working here and equally you could go upstairs and just look out in the dining room and see the diners feeling very well in their little cocoons of their own companionship at their table, eating and drinking. And I was like, this looks really great. And I'm so pleased with this. While also moments like, oh, 
okay, I just got a royalty check for my book. <laughs> you know, and you put your $2,100 in or whatever in the bank. And you're like, that's sweet, man. That is some good. <laughs> so little feelings like that. Yes. Yes. You also created a family. Yes. You mean an actual biological one too? No, 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 no. I mean, in terms of the restaurant. Yeah. I mean, a restaurant, you, those, those little moments you hear in the background, Hey, how you doing? Hey, did you get that gig or not? And then people coming to the place, that's, that's elements of a family. I couldn't agree more. And I, I didn't even know that's what I was doing. And I go to a lot of therapy. I'm one of those old school, like three days, lie down on the couch, analyst style. I've done that, you know, for my whole life. I think I've been in therapy since I'm like 12 years old, proudly. And, um, <laughs> you know, for me, it's like saying I go to the gym right. every day. I got abs, man. <laughs> <laughs> I have psychoanalytic abs. You, you'd love my, my, my butt. <laughs> Hold on. I need to write this one down. Psychoanalytic abs. You know, that Hemingway guy, he never wrote anything like that. Yeah. I mean, my, yeah. my psych, my six pack is strong, but even <laughs> so, I mean, I think that's what I'm saying in spite of that. I did not recognize what I was doing at Prune. I really didn't realize until after that I was trying to create um, a family so that I could re-experience and repair the one that I'd lost. And um, I hope I wasn't too, you know, overbearing or overweening or, you know, it could, I, it, I tried very hard to work against the like, it's very maternal in here, or it's very like that makes me suffocate. Just even hearing those words, I'm like, get your mommy issues off me. <laughs> but I think I was able to, to sort of reparent myself to use sort of current lingo, what the kids are saying um, while making prune the place that I always wished existed. Safe, secure, you know, when your paycheck is coming, you know what the expectations are. You know someone's going to get pissed if you're late. You know that the lights will always be on, that the Con Ed bill will be paid, that there's someone here keeping the you know, home fires burning. So that's what I wanted to convey to these employees, and that's what I did. And it worked for me. Gabrielle, uh, you're one of the most thoughtful people I've ever interviewed, and that was the case back in 2014. It's, it's always the case. and. I'm going to finish up with this, uh, and, but one of my favorite ends to an interview was that time in 2014, where you alluded to some of the things you said about you know, 20, 30 minutes ago, where you said, and I'm going to even quote it here, you said, you start to see your own attraction to near miss situations or highly unconventional behaviors. I do that radical self-confrontation act. Gabrielle, what are you attracted to about these situations? And then you finished up by saying, I'm a capable human. What would happen if I harness that and not putting out fires and crisis all the time and sadness and adversity? And then you looked at me and you said, can, can we do this again in 10 years? And like, you know, we'll see how I'm doing as far as that's concerned. And technically it's not 10, but it's nine. So. By freaking Michigan. <laughs> You're amazing. Also, this is remarkable how repetitive or consistent I am. I can't believe well, I'm saying the same things. How are you doing thing. as far as that's concerned? Yeah, well, I have some things that, I, that I'm very proud to report. For example, <laughs> <laughs> I've been married for eight years 
to a person that I adore and who adores me and with whom we have a very secure, safe union. That's pretty sweet. And I have two teenage children that I adore. (laughs) And I think they adore me too, even though they're at the stage where we don't talk about that a lot, you know, (laughs) but still I can see it. And I would say that's, those are two of my ambitions in life were to stabilize my parenting and my coupling and to not always be in such dramatic, volatile, high drama situations. So I'm going to give my 18 year old nighttime highway driving lessons tonight. Wow. And it's not going to go poorly. That's what's so fun. (laughs) (laughs) I know what he needs and I'm going to let him get it. And I'm not going to interfere. I'm just going to, I might have one Pim's cup, (laughs) just something slightly to take the edge off. And then I'm going to sit in the passenger seat and just, he has his license. (laughs) And the 16 year old, when he comes in and makes it clear that he just wants to shut his bedroom door and get off his back, I'm like, no problem. I don't need to get on your back. And then he comes out later. He's like, so what's up? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, as you can see, I'm very proud. I've done a lot of work there and I'm, I admit I have huge pride in these in these two realms that they've calmed the hell down. That's great to hear. That's great to hear. Gabrielle Hamilton, her beloved East Village restaurant Prune, remains closed at this time. Before the cheering started, it's a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. Thanks as always to editor Lou Pellegrino. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.